still. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. He says, be still and know that I am God. All right, Trinity Church, how you doing today? Good, you are ready. You watch that video and you're like, hey, we're gonna go for it today. We sure are. It's great to see you. My name's Todd Arnett. I'm the lead pastor here at Trinity Church. You're with us on week two of a brand new series in this brand new year called Still. And the video does a great job setting it up. We're talking about finding God as our refuge when facing fear. And what we looked at last week, if you weren't with us, we just began, I so appreciate Walter was here with us and did a great job just kind of beginning this series with some great foundational truth, looking at Psalm 46, looking at Philippians chapter four. And what we're gonna do as we move forward today is we're gonna begin looking at narratives throughout. So if you have a Bible today, you can get that out. We're gonna be in the book of Mark. Mark is the second book in the New Testament, chapter seven. And uh, Mark 7, you can find your way there. And then also, if you look in your Trinity this week, you have some notes that look like this if you want to get those out. That'll help you track with us um, throughout the message today. But also, if you're in a home group, that kind of provides your curriculum, your prompts for your conversation this week as you consider what we're talking about today a little, little more uh, communally and, and more conversationally in your group this week. A couple things while you're finding your way there, a couple things that are going on. Today, right after this service, if you are relatively new to Trinity Church, we would love the chance to get to meet you. So we do a thing called uh, Start Here, and it's right out on the plaza. There's an easy up that has a, the notation, looks just like that. And that time is intended for you, to, if you want a chance to just to meet me and some of our other pastors, we'll be out there in that space. And just, we really would love the chance to say hello, get to know a name, maybe if we have any questions we could answer. And part of our time there too is just to help you a little bit with what next as you're kind of there is like, how do I get involved at Trinity? I'd like to know more about. One of those next steps is something that we call our design class. And what we believe is that when anyone puts their faith in Jesus, one thing that happens is that he gifts you with what we call spiritual gifts. And he's been doing that, I believe, actually ever since you were born, long before you ever knew him or responded to him, he was shaping you, preparing you, designing you to serve him. And so that's what that class is about. So if you would be here and you'd say, you know what, I'm relatively new to Trinity, or even I've been here a long time, but I want to get involved in serving, I just don't know where, I don't know what to do, then the design class is for you. It's next Sunday, begins during this service, the 9.30 hour over in M201, which is our upstairs in our ministry building across the way. So I just want to encourage you, take that next step. Well, last week, like we said, we began talking about a series that we know that is relatable, we know that we all, as a, as a people, we struggle with fear and anxiety for a host of reasons, and those fears and anxieties are as many as there are people in the room. What we're gonna do, though, throughout this series is we're gonna keep going back to the Word of God and seeing that God actually has a prescription. He has a, a, a way for us to respond in our fear, in our anxiety, and it's, I don't wanna want make it so formulaic, but I also feel like, for many of us, we just feel stuck. 
I don't know how this changes. I don't know how I ever begin to function more like I know God would want me to in confidence and in peace rather than being so chained to frustration and fear and anxiety. And so I'm really glad you're here today, and that's our goal over the next few weeks. We're going to look at some narratives, pull some principles out. What I've noticed as I've looked over the different narratives we're looking at, I don't think it was the intent initially, but each of the narratives seems to have a focus, even though it relates to all kinds of fears each week has a kind of a unique focus about that particular fear. And today, the kind of fear we're going to look at is the kind of fear that every parent can identify with when we are anxious or fearful over things that our kids are going through. And if you're here today and don't have kids, don't have grandkids, you'll still be able to relate. But especially for those of you who do, you'll find today you'll really be able to relate to this mom that we um, interact with a little bit. So today's now what statement. We do a now what kind of related to more than just a summary statement. What am I supposed to do this week with this passage in scripture? So you can see it on the screen and in your notes. Approach Jesus with your fears in the appropriate posture of humility, being mindful of who he is. So we're invited, come to Jesus with your fears, but do so aware and remembering who he is. So let's dial in today. Number one in your notes, no matter who you are, you can approach Jesus. No matter who you are, you can approach Jesus. Now, that might seem relatively trite and definitely not rocket science. We tend to think that pretty much typically, but I believe there's a a group of people in this room who don't actually believe that related to, but you don't know what I've done. Or I have been so irreligious my whole life, there's no way that I could actually approach God. And I want you to know, as we'll see today in this narrative, no matter who you are, where you're from, what your background is, it doesn't matter. All of us are made in the image of God. All of us are loved by God and invited to approach him. So let's see where we're at. We're in Mark chapter seven, beginning in verse 24. It says, Jesus left that place, and in just a minute ago, in a minute, I'll tell you where he was. And he went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. Well, let's do this. Let's back up today. Let's find a little bit of the context. We're in Mark 7, and in the flow, what's just happened before this will give us a context of where Jesus was leaving from. What often happened to Jesus is that he had a a myriad of different types of groups of people. Today, this passage is contrasting two specific types. One, this woman that we'll see in just a minute. But where Jesus had just been at was with a group of people who were religious, the religious elite of Judaism. And what they were constantly doing was trying to trip him up, constantly trying to find holes in what he was saying, and absolutely disbelieved he was the unique son of God. So what had just happened is is that his disciples had come in and they'd begun to have a meal and these religious uppity-ups, they noticed that they did not initially ceremonially wash their hands. Exactly. You'd go nuts over that too, right? It's just crazy not craziness. How in the world could you not dip and wash and do this whole thing first? So Jesus is dealing with that, and they go to Jesus, and they say, Jesus, we noticed how unreligious your, um, your disciples are. You know, you need to give an account for this. And this law, by the way, that they were talking about was completely man-made. God had never given them this particular requirement. And, and if you're me, you're asking the question, now wait a second, 
Why would anyone add more laws to the law that God had given that already contained 613? Who needs more than that? That surely should cover every part of my life. And it would be for this reason. When I add laws to what God has already given us, then all of a sudden I really show how super spiritual, how super holy I must be. Because I obey the laws not only that you peasants do, but even the ones that are even more important that I've created myself. It's exactly what's going on in this scenario. But what's also interesting is that it's really easy to measure keeping the law of ceremonially washing your hands. It's pretty overt, pretty external, pretty easy to monitor. What's harder to monitor is your heart. And it's in this context that Jesus shares these words from Mark chapter seven. If you're in your Bible, you can just go back up to verse 21. He says, it's in your heart where evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Jesus is saying it's much harder to monitor someone else's heart. It's even more difficult sometimes to monitor your own. But that's what you should be paying attention to, not if my disciples' hands are clean because your man-made laws say so. So that's the context of where Jesus is coming from, and now we pick it up. So he went into a place, this seems a little bit unique to us, that Jesus didn't want anyone to know he was there. Actually, if you read the Gospels, you'll read numerous times where either Jesus went away to be alone or just came to an area and didn't want, initially, the rush of people wanted to have some unique appointments first. And my question to you is, have you ever had a time when you just wanted to be alone and just needed to get away? Maybe you can relate to this guy. Exactly. I could totally see myself doing something like that. When I was watching that this week, I thought, dear Lord, please don't ever let me do that again. So, um, now, Jesus never had that reason to want to get away. He never did those kinds of things. Those are more like us. But what he did encounter were people who were always needing him. Now, you have people in your life that are needy, some for appropriate reasons, others that just maybe more needy than you would like, but you have needs around you that people look to for, but imagine Jesus. Whether it's people who disbelieve him and are looking to always trip him up, whether it's the crowds that are as fickle based on if he feeds them that day or not, whether it's his own disciples who he will be teaching them and they'll look at him and say, we just don't get it. Whether it's people who are always coming to him begging for miracles, Jesus always had this nonstop flow of people, and we're gonna see in our narrative today, and yet one more, who needed something from him. Jesus just wanted to be alone, just wanted to recharge, but it's gonna be out of that place today we're gonna find that moment at least wouldn't happen in this specific time because this woman's gonna find his way to his feet and she's gonna beg. Now let's relate a little bit, let's talk a little bit about this woman. She had everything stacked against her. Number one, she was a woman in a male-dominated culture. Number two, as it relates to Jesus being Jewish, she was a Gentile and she knew that even by law, Jews were not supposed to associate with Gentiles. But like every other mom in the room today, 
She was intensely fearful of the condition that her daughter was in, and there was no hope in her mind aside from this Jewish rabbi. It's a good thing that Jesus wasn't like other religious leaders of his day. Jewish men would wake up and pray prayers like this. Look at it, it's up on your screen. I think, blessed are you, O God, King of the universe, who has not made me a Gentile, a slave, and a woman. You imagine? Thank you, God, I'm not one of those. This lady was two of those. So you can imagine already there was this sense of, of other religious leaders who had probably even given her this impression, I want nothing to do with you. But the context of the narrative regarding Jesus' run-in with these Jewish religious leaders back in Galilee that we looked at just a minute ago, it's supremely intentional, as now Mark is showing the response, the faith, and the hope of a Gentile woman who normally would have no opportunity to meet with him. Look how James Edwards, the commentary writer, said it this way. In the present story, Mark shows that a Gentile pagan can find in Jesus what the tradition of the elders mistakenly thought could only be found in the Torah. They missed it, and it was right in front of her. And I want you, what I want you to hear today, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, hear clearly today in your notes, God invites you to find your refuge in him. God invites you, he welcomes you to find your refuge in him. Now, I want you to note the woman's approach to Jesus in these next few verses. As soon as she heard he was in town, like she didn't waste any time. The text we read said that. As soon as she heard, she didn't even go find anyone to go with her. She didn't even do fact checking. She just went and found him. Where could he be, even though he was trying to be stealth? And she knew how out of place it was. She knew that him being a Jew and a man would be so much not the situation that would welcome her as a Gentile woman. But watch this, she was moved because of the plight of her daughter. And the fears that she had there that there would never be a change in her condition, this degree of anxiety and fear moved her to do something about this. We all know this is one of the most universal types of fears that we face fears of our children's well-being. Sometimes that has to do with the fact of something that's happened to our child, maybe related to a sickness or a health-related issue. Sometimes it relates to what other people are doing to them, and sometimes it simply relates to what they're doing to themselves. But either way, this kind of universal fear and anxiety over the well-being of our kids, so many of us today in this room can relate to that. Either way, it's the kind that can create great fear and anxiety within us, and it will drive you to your knees, just like it did to this mom. I want you to note her posture. Her posture is one of humility. She fell at his feet. She didn't walk into this room where Jesus was and start demanding anything. She fell at his feet, and she began to beg. She began to beg. I, I wonder if you've ever been in this position before. Think about, think about this. Think about the last time that you begged someone for something. Now, all of us can relate, every one of us when we were five, mommy, 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 oh, just stop, okay? So we all did that kind of begging, but I want you to fast forward, fast forward to where you are more recently. Fast forward maybe to in, in high school or as an adult. Fast forward to the last time you literally begged someone for something. Because if you get back into that moment, you get back into your shoes, you realize something strong was driving you because that is a humiliating thing to beg. It is the posture of great humbleness 
to come before someone else who holds something you want and beg them for it. Now, some of us have done that on our own accord, meaning it was that police officer who pulled us over, right? It began with some initial, this isn't my fault and excuses, but then for some of us it moved. If that wasn't gonna be enough, if you really thought your life was over because he or she wrote that ticket, you began to beg. Tears might have flown the whole thing, right? Well, either way, that sometimes moves us because of our own predicament, but more often, it seems that we're willing to beg on the behalf of someone else. Meaning if this was only something that related to me, if this was just my problem, I probably would have too much pride, I probably would have too much reserve to actually beg for help, but because this affects my child, I'm willing to get on my knees and beg you to do something. I want you to get into her sandals today. I want you to think about this was her posture. Maybe like this woman, you've not only begged other people, but you've begged God. God, would you bring change to this situation? God, would you bring healing? Whatever it was. And maybe you even kept the posture of humility for a reasonable amount of time, but at some point it turned a corner and your begging became demanding. Entitlement took in and you began to say things like, God, this isn't fair. Or even, God, how dare you? Many of us have had moments like that. And all in all, I'd simply say this, begging doesn't seem like what this series is called still, does it? I mean, the definition we gave last week from Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God. That's the only imperative verb, the only direction in that entire psalm. And we said the word still is likened to the word lean or relax. Begging doesn't look anything like that. But I want you to see today that in her begging, she moves not over to entitlement, but instead even greater humility. Look in your notes, number two. Demonstrate both faith and humility when you go to God with your fears. Demonstrate both faith and humility when you go to God with your fears. Mark chapter seven, continuing on, the next verses, verse 27. This is Jesus' response to her begging. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. What? <laughs> I'm, I'm asking you, you're reading this and you're going, where'd the other kids and the dogs come from? Like this is a lady begging Jesus to heal her daughter and now all of a sudden there's more kids and dogs. And I'm secondly confused, why are the dogs eating this stuff off the table? I don't know how it works at your home, maybe they do. Ours eat that Alpo stuff we put in their little jar, you know? So where, where and, and what, oh, by the way, did Jesus just call her a dog? He did. He did. And I want you to see something today. I've chose this passage for this series because it so aligns with what we are called to do in the midst of fear and anxiety, how we are to humbly come before God and recognizing who he is and who we are. But the other reason I chose it, it's a difficult passage to understand. And I want to help you, if you've ever read, Matthew 15 is the corollary place where, you're, where you'll find this narrative, or here in Mark 7. If you've ever read that and honestly thought, I think Jesus is a jerk. 
What's he doing? Like, why would you call a woman and her child a dog? Like, what is this about? I want to help you with that today. And what I want you to see is I want you to see a powerful metaphor that not only explains Jesus' mission, but absolutely demonstrates this woman's faith and her humility. So let's take a look at that. Jesus, in her begging, doesn't give her an answer. He gives her a metaphor. It's very common, actually. Often, Jesus, when he's asked a question, he reverses it and just asks another question to the person who's asking him. Or times like this, he'll give a, a metaphor or even a parable to answer a question that's being asked. So this isn't a new thing. He doesn't say yes or no to her begging, to her pleading, but he does frame the context of the issue clearly for her. He doesn't say that only are these, these food things for the children, just saying first. First for the kids, then for the dogs. Jesus is not seeing this woman as someone who has no place, who has no right to come to her, but what he is sharing with her is something that she knew before she even walked in the door. This is Israel's Messiah. You see, we have to remember over millennia, over centuries, God had promised to Israel, I am going to send one who is uniquely going to represent me, who is going to make, as we sang today, all things new. He's going to come as your anointed king. Jesus came to fulfill that mission, and here's the great news for us today, and more. But when Jesus is on the planet, what he's doing in this scenario is he's establishing not an exclusivity, but a prioritization. I've come first for the house of Israel. Second, besides doing the, establishing that reality, it is tough for us to hear the Son of God refer to a woman and her daughter like dogs. So let's unpack that a little bit. I have a couple of things that I think will help. First off, in the original Greek language, there are multiple words that Jesus could have used for a dog, but the word he chose was not the kind of dog that's a stray or a junkyard dog. There's a name for that. He chose a household pet. He chose the type of dog that you have in your home, that you coddle, that you care for. That's the kind of dog, well, some of you should do more of that, you know, but anyway, you have one. And since back in this time, 2,000 years ago, they didn't have Alpo, this is how dogs were fed. We're from the scraps that were done after the meal. So here's my point, 2,000 years later in Southern California, it's a little harder for us to grab hold of this metaphor, but Jesus and this woman knew exactly what they were talking about. And you're gonna see that in just a moment based on her response. Jesus is saying, rather than giving an answer for a daughter's healing, Jesus says, there's a prioritization of why I've come. The house of Israel represents the children at the table. The rest of the world represents our pets. Those who still grow up and live in our home, those that we take care of, but there's a prioritization, and pets always eat after the kids are done. So for instance, the words we use, Jesus could have used a word that looked like this, this kind of a dog that was that kind of junkyard dog, it would eat off decomposing bodies. That's that kind of dog. He could have said that, but he didn't. He said a dog that's somewhere like this. This kind of dog, okay? <laughs> this is my dog, Mosley, that we talk about often that I need to love more. It's the bottom line. I just don't. But <laughs> you'll notice in this picture, this is exactly what the narrative is. Dogs don't get Froyo first, but they get it when the kids are done. That's a young Ellie in the background. And when she was done eating her frozen yogurt, then Mosley gets a shot. It's appropriate. It goes in that order. 
So this is what Jesus is talking about. What I want you to see, though, is how well this woman understood what was happening. You see, Jesus says, in essence, I have come to the house of Israel, and what I've come to bring is for them initially, but then I'll be sure to share it with the whole world afterwards. As much as that might still be hard to process, like, how does that all work? What I really want you to grab hold of is this woman's response today. Because that's the shoes I asked you earlier to get into. I want you to see not only her humility and faith, I want you to see her wit. Because I don't think this was the metaphor everyone just starts walking around through town talking about, or the way that dogs eat after the kids do. So within the metaphor, listen to what she says, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Watch a couple of things of what she said and what she didn't say. She called Jesus Lord. Did you catch that even the religious leaders of Israel, they continued to criticize him, continued to think he was anything but deity. She acknowledges out of the beginning, I know I'm talking to someone very unique from anyone else, Lord. And back to the metaphor she stays in stride with this metaphor and makes a secondary appeal. Even the household pets get the leftovers that come off of the children's crumbs. What an amazing response of humility. She never once says, how dare you? She never once says, how, how could you ever compare me to a, a pet animal in your home? She didn't say any of that. She says, consistent with Jesus' metaphor, but even the pets get the crumbs. Is there any crumbs for my daughter today? Listen to James Edwards again. The woman's reply to Jesus in verse 28 shows her understanding and acceptance of Israel's privilege. Watch this. Indeed, she appears to understand the purpose of Israel's Messiah better than Israel does. That's a powerful line. In its present location, the word bridges Jesus' feeding of the Jews, which happened in Mark chapter 6, and his subsequent feeding of the Gentiles, which is going to happen in Mark chapter 8, this chapter comes right in between those. When dogs eat crumbs from the table, they do not rob the children of their food. They simply eat what is theirs from the surplus of the children. Words loaded with humility, not entitlement. And I want you to see today that she is still. Though she began this conversation on her face and begging, now once Jesus is talking to her, she moves to a a posture of stillness to simply, humbly, respectfully responding to what Jesus has just said to her. She doesn't get offended by Jesus' metaphor. She doesn't get irate because it isn't fair that Jesus first came to Israel. She doesn't give up, but with wit, replies in a manner consistent with the faith in who Jesus is and what he came to do. I want you to do this. I want you to think of a time when you were incredibly anxious, a time when you had intense fear. And it might not be hard to do. It might have been something on the way to church today. It might have been something this last week. Think of that time and simply put yourself in that moment today, kind of paralleling this woman's situation. She has a daughter that she doesn't think will ever get better aside from this rabbi doing something. Put yourself in that situation and let's ask a couple of questions about your and my response beyond her own. Did you have the humility to approach Jesus rightfully as who he is? Lord, not forgetting 
his title, his role, and his power? Did you have the faith to keep on trying rather than give up at the first sign of no? Did you accuse God of being unfair rather than accepting from him that his plan was different than your cause? These are all things that this woman is exemplary to us in. Finally today, number three, Jesus erases the issues that cause you to fear as they align with his sovereign plan. I wanna read this twice. I wanna make sure you understand my wording on this. Jesus erases the issue that ca- issues that cause you to fear as they align or when they align with his sovereign plan. Please don't read that as some carte blanche promise because that'd be heresy. Because you've already lived that, walked that, you know different. But what I'm saying today is, is that Jesus has a plan. And when the things that cause you fear are things that he rightfully wants to alleviate, he will. Back to Mark, Mark chapter seven, verse 29. Then he told her, for such a reply you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon was gone. Before we get into these verses, let me define my terms. I find that always very, very helpful. Let me define the word sovereign for you as far as how we'll use it today. It's in your notes. The word sovereign, when applied to God, means that he has the absolute right to do all things according to his own good pleasure. God has the absolute right, and I would even add to that, the absolute resources, the power to do all things consistent with his own good pleasure. So when we say that God is sovereign, we're not just saying God is able to accomplish what he accomplishes. He is able to accomplish what pleases him, what he wants to do. No one else's agenda is in the mix. It's God who has the agenda, and the agenda is consistent with his character, and he has the wherewithal to see those things through. That's what the word sovereign or sovereignty means. So when we see that, As you read the New Testament, you come to some interesting conclusions why Jesus seems to heal some people and not others. Sometimes there actually seems to be very little faith involved. Sometimes Jesus approaches someone who he knows has a problem. It's not hard to tell that a guy laying on a mat by the side of the road needs help. Sometimes Jesus approaches those people, but most of the time, you see there being some demonstration of faith some recognition of who Jesus is and that he's categorically different. And sometimes that faith has nothing to do with the person. Remember the narrative when the four friends pull back the thatching of the roof and lower their friend down into a room that was completely body to body full. Jesus says it's based on their faith that I'm making you well. Today, it's not based on the daughter's faith, it's based on the mom's. The faith keeps showing up. A question for us today, by the way, the the counter narrative in Matthew 15, Jesus actually identifies that. He exclaims, woman, you have great faith. So he acknowledges that her faith is not only encouraging to be around, but actually the catalyst for her daughter's healing. Question for you today, what about the times when healing doesn't come? What about the times when our fears are realized and the person that we care so much about continues to suffer or even passes away? What about when we pray for someone's healing and God answers no? Is it because we didn't have enough faith? Is it because he loves us or them less? Is it because he's not listening? Is it because he's not powerful enough? And I'd say to all of those, no. Those aren't the factors. 
This is why I use the specific wording on this third point related to Jesus' sovereign plan. Think of this area. Jesus retreated into a place that Jews never went, the vicinity of Tyre out by the coast. It was a very Gentile pagan area. It had been inundated by pagan idolatry for generations. Think of the impact, not just in, think of concentric circles, not just in that young girl's life, not just in her mom's life, but in everyone they touched. When that mom said, it's because of that Jewish rabbi Jesus that my daughter is well, think of the impact that would have in an impacted area that did not know Yahweh and had not yet heard or received news about his son. Because it aligned with Jesus' sovereign plan, he healed the girl. But I want you to hear today, if it had not, no amount of begging or pleading would have changed the situation. It keeps coming back to God's good and perfect plan. So it brings us back to this axiom in your notes, this axiom we keep discovering. Nothing makes it into my life that doesn't first go through God's sovereign grid. Nothing makes it into my life, nothing makes it into my kid's life, nothing makes it into my grandkid's life, nothing makes it into the lives of people I love dearly, nothing makes it into our lives apart from what God allows. It goes through his grid first, and for some of us, that gives us great encouragement. For others, we go, God, well then how did you miss this one? This thing that we're facing, this thing we're dealing with, it looks like you were sleeping when that thing got through the grid and to us, because it is brutal. How do I know this is true? Because a passage that I have moved out of the, I just say this to sprinkle over everything to truly have a conviction of, but we know that in all things, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And I want you to see that last line. They're called according to his purpose, not their own. Called according to his purpose. Question for you today, do you want God's sovereign plan for your life or your own flawed plan for your life? Maybe a better question, do you want his sovereign plan for your kids and your grandkids even above your own flawed plan that would in, not include any pain, any discomfort, but lots of opportunity? That's the way in our flesh we would think, that's the life I want for my kid. I want you to hear this clearly today. You don't want that for your kids. You don't, and here's how I know why. Here's how you know why. The times that you have grown the most, the times that you have learned to rely upon God the most have been the times when you've been in the valleys, have been in the times when you've known pain, have been in the times when you've known discomfort, have been for lack of opportunities. Why, if God has used that to grow and develop you, why would your kids not need the same? And can I tell you, kids who don't need to rely on God become adults who don't need to rely upon God. The very people you're most heartbroken in your relational world who don't want to respond to Jesus are the people who have seemed as though they can control their lives all the way through. They don't need him now because they haven't needed him ever. You don't want that for your kids. This is how God helps us bend to him, grow like we learned in James chapter one, become enduring and persevering Maybe the most honest answer in this room today, do you want God's plan? Maybe it's the one I put in your notes. 
Maybe the most honest answer in the room, I feel like, is a good place to start. No. No, at this point today, I don't. I don't currently want God's sovereign plan over my own, the plan I have, but I want to learn. I want to learn how to pry my white-knuckled hands off of my plan and humbly surrender my fetish with myself and my short-sighted happiness for the big picture of what God is wanting to do in and through me. Maybe that's where it begins today. I loved it last week when Walter at the end walked us through this five-chapter autobiography. And we said, we know that people in this room are all over the map in this place related to fears and anxieties, but I would say to you today, maybe if you're in chapters one and two and you keep falling in the same hole, maybe you could at least begin with that honest prayer, God, I don't know if I'm ready today to let go of what I'm holding tightly to, but I want to be. Can you at least meet me there and see change begin in my heart? And then my hands would begin to let go, be unpried, so that you could do in and through me and in and through the people around me what you want to do. I'd say that's a really good place to start. If you're, what do you do in this space when God keeps answering no to your prayers? What do you do in the meantime? It's the axiom we shared last week. You avert anxiety through prayer, thankfulness, and God's promise of peace. I really believe that these words from Philippians 4, 6, and 7 are really meant to be that, an ongoing mode, an ongoing method. And I don't mean to make it formulaic. I don't mean to say just do these two things and this, this great gift of peace comes on the other end. But I am saying it seems as though when you read Philippians 4, rather than be anxious about anything in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, make your requests made known to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That seems like something I need to and want to do daily. God, rather than be lost, crawling in fear and anxiety, help me put these things into mode. Help me to learn to pray more than I worry. Help me to come to you with thankfulness and gratitude and help me to anticipate the promise of peace. Here we are only week two into a series and I wanna encourage you as you maybe walk away with something today, if nothing else, keep this tension of humility and fear. Remind ourselves, even though we live on this side of the fact that Jesus came and presented himself to all the world, praise God. But in doing so, he still is King of kings and Lord of lords. And we approach him out of that kind of reverence, respect, and humility. As we finish today, our now what? Approach Jesus with your fears in the appropriate posture of humility, being mindful of who he is. Walter said it well last week. We consistently offer you the availability of people pray with you after a service. Why would you pass that up? It's just such a great thing to do. You don't have to get counseling. You don't have to tell anything more than you want. But if there's something that is a fear and anxiety today, especially, not only, but especially, man, come forward and have somebody pray for you as we close. Let me pray. Father, we come before you today with a passage that has got complications trying to understand it. But when we walk away, we realize how much is going on and we realize the humility and the faith of this woman. This woman who was at wit's end, she was terrified of what was gonna not happen in her daughter's life. 
And it drove her, God, to come to you, first begging, but ultimately in the right kind of faith and humility. Father, would we be people this week that approach you in a similar form? And you might be here today and you might say, Todd, I really ever approach God because I've never really responded to his invitation of forgiveness and salvation. I, I've been a deist. I mean, I believe there's a God out there, but I didn't know you could have a, a personal relationship with him. If that's you today and you want to do something about that, I have great news because you can right here and right now. A is to admit, to admit that you're a sinner who needs a savior. B is to believe that this Jesus we've talked about today, this God-man, believe that he's the only savior available. And note that the invitation has nothing to do with religion today. It's all about a right relationship with God through Jesus. C is choose. Choose to say, Jesus, I believe, I put my confidence in what you did for me at the cross and the empty tomb. And as a result of that, I wanna live empowered by your spirit to live out your example in my world. You can make that decision right here, right now. I pray that you would. You wouldn't let another day go by before responding to this great God who loves you so much. Father, we love you. Help us this week. Walk in faith and humility and let those things dispel our fears and anxieties. We love you and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.